Are you in college? The Thomistic Institute Study Abroad program is now accepting applications for the spring semester of 2024. This unique and exciting study abroad program offers you the opportunity to spend a semester in Rome at the Dominican Order's Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas. You'll study the ancient and medieval intellectual tradition of Rome, live with like-minded young men and women steps from the Colosseum, and participate in weekly cultural and intellectual events, regular day trips, and multi-day excursions. To learn more about this life-changing opportunity, go to ThomisticInstitute.org slash Rome. That's ThomisticInstitute.org slash Rome. Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Well, everybody, I'd just like to give a brief introduction to our speaker tonight, Dr. Michael Foley from Baylor University. Um, he holds two bachelor degrees from Santa Clara. Uh, he's got a PhD from Boston College, currently a professor at Baylor. Um, he's also the president for the Society of Catholic Liturgy in the United States. Um, he's the author of many books and articles on St. Augustine, the Roman liturgy, philosophy, literature, and recreation. Um, his most well-known book is Drinking with the Saints, and he's here in D.C. promoting his new book, uh, Dining with the Saints, came out yesterday. Um, but I'm sure he will tell you that his proudest accomplishment is his wife and their six children joins us today. So give a please, please give a warm welcome to Dr. Michael Foley. Thank you very much, Ryan. And thank you all. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I, I am better known, as Ryan said, for my uh, drinking books. And some of you may have expected a talk about drinking, which I'm actually happy to provide. That is to say, I do have five sort of short bullet points for how to drink like a saint. But uh, the powers that be would have preferred a more sober topic for the evening. So even though I, I can give you two for the price of one, what I'm going to talk about tonight, as has been advertised, is eating and drinking to the glory of God. And the emphasis there is on the eating. So let's, in good, moderate fashion, let's start with food. And then if you want, we can have a drink. So um, I'm grateful that you invited me here, and I'm, and I'm grateful that you asked me to do this topic, even though it's Lent. Um, you know, so I, as Ryan mentioned, I'm here promoting Dining with the Saints. Came out yesterday, and several people have already teased me, why would you tempt us with a cookbook during Lent? And my answer is, well, you do have to eat during Lent as well. And as a matter of fact, there are... Uh, venerable seasonal culinary dishes that were designed specifically for Lent, designed to meet the dietary restrictions, even under a much stricter age for the season of Lent. Um, but there is a deeper reason as well why it's appropriate to talk about food even during Lent. Feasting and fasting are actually two sides of the same coin. Uh, they're not enemies, they're complementary. Uh, fasting increases our appreciation of feasting, and vice versa. Um, and part of the crisis in which we live today, both as a church and as society, is not only have we lost the art of 
healthy fasting, we have also lost the art of healthy feasting. And it is on healthy feasting that I would like to speak tonight. Um, the title of my talk is obviously from 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatsoever else you do, do all to the glory of God. St. Paul is weighing in on whether Christians can eat meat that has been sacrificed in pagan temples. And perhaps somewhat surprisingly, his answer is that they can do so, as long as they don't scandalize their neighbor, and as long as they are motivated by a love of and gratitude for the one true God. But what does it mean for us in the 21st century to eat and drink to the glory of God? Most of us do not live in fear of eating meat that may have been sacrificed to Zeus or Hera. But we do have anxieties of our own these days that may be somewhat similar. Tonight, I would like to identify two divergent trends in contemporary life. The elevation of what has been called mindful eating and the decline of the family meal. And then I wish to propose ways in which the Catholic faith can address and perhaps even remedy these trends. All right, let's start with a modern situation and the first trend, mindful eating. In a 2009 article entitled, Is Food the New Sex? Mary Eberstadt astutely observes that the contemporary West has reversed its morality concerning food and sexual intimacy. Whereas previous generations, as recently as the 1950s, were relatively indifferent about what foods they ate and morally exacting about the use and abuse of the procreative act, today's citizens, on the other hand, are like a photographic negative they have a growing list of morally charged verbotens about food and a shrinking list of morally forbidden venereal acts. Put bluntly, Eberstadt concludes, we live in an age of mindful eating and mindless sex. Mindful eating includes opposition to eating flesh meat or endangered fish, to industrialized breeding and farm factory slaughtering, to genetically modified fruits and vegetables, and to pesticides and other artificial agents. Mindful eating tends to be wary of gluten, carbs, trans fats, and dairy products, and fond of terms such as free trade, organic, free range, grass-fed, sustainable, and local. Mindful eating has many advantages, both in terms of personal health and social and environmental benefits. It can lead to better fitness, a more humane treatment of animals, a greater stewardship of the land, and a more just compensation for the workers involved. So I'm not poo-pooing mindful eating. But, as with sex, the more preoccupied we become with the moral and nutritional value of food, the greater potential to turn a simple act into an insatiable ethical quagmire. Just as the Victorian era's desire for sexual propriety could turn into prudery, so too does our current desire for holistic eating run the risk of creating moral anxiety and even neurosis. Do you remember the show, The Good Place? 
the clever but ultimately nihilistic NBC series about the afterlife. In one episode, it is revealed that no soul has been admitted to the good place for several hundred years because modern life has made it impossible for anyone good enough to get in. Buying a tomato at the grocery store or ordering flowers for your grandmother, quote, means you are unwittingly supporting toxic pesticides, exploited, exploited labor, contributing to global warming, and giving money to a billionaire racist CEO who sends his female employees highly inappropriate pictures of himself. These are valid concerns, and I do not belittle them. Indeed, I contend that it is even worse than The Good Place thinks. Even if I go to the extreme and eat only organic vegetables that are locally grown, I still know that vegetables, like animals, are living things, and that I have taken a life in order to save mine. If I eat only fruits and nuts, which were never alive but the products of living plants and trees, I must still acknowledge that these gardens, crops, and orchards are protected by a system of violence, by birds that devour depredating insects, by hunters who keep deer and feral hog populations at bay, and by a military-industrial complex that keeps our arable lands safe from invasion. And if I really want to dig deep, I cannot help but be saddened by the unjust manner in which those lands were taken from their native inhabitants. It is always the case, as St. Augustine puts it, that one creature of God feeds upon another. And east of Eden, that feeding is tied inextricably and inevitably to a world that is red in tooth and claw and red from the blood of Abel. To put it bluntly, no matter how hard we scrub our organic apples, there is still moral dirt on them. You see where the neurosis could come in? <laughs> so that's the first trend, and you can see the danger of it. Uh, the second trend is the family meal. At the same time that food is being raised in our consciousness to potentially dangerously high levels, the sharing of food at the dinner table is dwindling in an equally dangerous way. The American College of Pediatricians reports that family time at the dinner table and family conversation in general has declined by more than 30%. There is another study that suggests the decline is not that bad overall, but that low-income families who have less control over their work schedules have suffered disproportionately from this trend. Like the proverbial frog in the slowly boiling water, we Americans who have been weaned on generations of fast food and TV dinners have grown accustomed to dining habits that leave the rest of the world aghast. Uh, several years ago, the French sociologist, philosopher, and cultural theorist Jean Baudrillard visited New York City and was horrified by one sight in particular. Yeah, I won't do the French accent. I was about to, but... <laughs> <laughs> Yet there is a certain solitude like no other, that of the man preparing his meal in public on a wall or on the hood of his car or along a fence alone. You see that all the time here. It is the saddest sight in the world, sadder than destitution, sadder than the beggar, 
is the man who eats alone in public. Nothing more contradicts the laws of man or beast. For animals always do each other the honor of sharing or disputing each other's food. He who eats alone is dead. Baudrillard has the typical French penchant for hyperbole where matters of the culinary and dining arts are concerned. The monophagist, to use the fancy term for one who eats alone, is not dead. But it may be true that he is not fully alive. Studies over the past several decades suggest that the loss of the family meal is linked to increased substance abuse, unwanted pregnancies, depression, obesity, lower academic performance, smaller vocabularies, and reduced literary skills. Among adults, the decline in the family meal correlates to poorer mental and physical health and higher divorce rates. Even dining among non-related adults brings blessings to the group. Firefighters who have meals together, for instance, have enhanced team performance. I also fear that a decline in family meals will have a deleterious effect on two other areas, citizenship and religious identity. If the family dinner is lost as a basic unit, greater public festivities may suffer. Thanksgiving and Christmas dinners are meaningful as a heightened and more solemn expression of the daily supper. What will these celebrations look like, or will they even continue when the humdrum model on which they are based disappears? What will happen to civic occasions like the 4th of July picnic? Uh, second, I believe that a loss in family meals will hurt religion, albeit in different ways. For the past several decades in the Catholic Church, we have debated about whether the Mass is more of a sacrifice or a meal. The debate itself is based on an impoverished understanding of the biblical concept of sacrifice, which already includes a meal. So this is a false dichotomy. But now I, I fear that the debate will be even more unintelligible to a generation who do not even understand what a meal is. A generation ago, we didn't understand what a sacrifice is. Now we don't even know, now I worry we're not even going to know what a meal is. No wonder that at some masses, the Holy Communion lines feel more like ordering a quarter pounder at McDonald's than participating in a heavenly banquet. All right, that's all the bad news. Let's turn to the good news, possible Catholic antidotes. Response to mindful eating. As we've already noted, there's nothing wrong with mindful eating as long as it does not displace the importance of chastity or reach neurotic levels. We can avoid, avoid these pitfalls simply by embracing Orthodox Catholic ethics, which will help us keep things in perspective. Um, no one's ever gone to the confessional, nor should they, saying, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. I've eaten a non-organic tomato. So while these concerns are valid, let's just put things in perspective. Um, to the more specific worry, and it is a genuine worry, that all of our food has been spoiled by injustice, we can embrace what I call the Saving Pride Ryan solution, based on Steven Spielberg's 1998 blockbuster. In the movie, as you know, several men die in order to save the life of Private James Ryan. 
The Dying Words of the Last Man, Captain John Miller, played by Tom Hanks, to Private Ryan are James, earn this. Earn it. Decades later, an older James Ryan stands in front of Miller's grave and says, Every day I think about what you said to me that day on the bridge. I tried to live my life the best I could. I hope that was enough. I hope that, at least in your eyes, I've earned what all of you have done for me. I bring up the example of Private Ryan not in order to draw a moral equivalency between the death of soldiers and the consumption of lesser creatures, but again to put things in perspective. Like it or not, we are all the beneficiaries of blood shed for us. From the fallen heroes of our armed forces to Jesus Christ on the cross. If a pig or a cow or even a carrot must die in order for us to live, then let us earn it by living our lives the best that we can. There should be something sobering about knowing that we are at the top of the food chain. Rather than making us arrogant and triumphant, it should fill us with a sense of unworthiness and humility and purpose. For to whom much is given, much is expected. Uh, to illustrate my point, let me share with you a personal memory. One year, a farmer friend gave us one of his geese for our Christmas dinner. When my, when my wife thanked him for his generosity, he replied, Oh, not at all. It was an honor for this goose to end up at the Foley's table, on the Foley's table, rather than to die of old age or be killed by a coyote. An honor. Now, I'm sure that if we had asked the goose, he would have told us that it was an honor he would be willing to forego. But nevertheless, it is an honor. It is an ennoblement for the lower to participate in the higher. And when goose flesh becomes human flesh, it becomes part of a higher reality, a temple of the Holy Spirit. This is true even when goose flesh nourishes thieves and other scoundrels, for even the worst of sinners continues to bear the imago dei, and their bodies continue to participate in that ontological dignity. And the holier the person, the truer this principle. Consider the singular honor bestowed upon the little lamb that was our Lord's last supper, to feed the Son of God. My friend's way of seeing things, in other words, is an example of the Save It Private Ryan solution. Both science and common sense tell us that animals, including us as rational animals, live off the deaths of others. Rather than bemoan this fact of life or try to circumvent it, we should live our lives worthy of these sacrifices. Let us, let us eat to keep the animal department of our nature functioning, and let us conduct ourselves in a way that our position as apex predators bears spiritual fruit. One of the benefits of mindful eating is that it beckons us to a higher calling of redeeming our destruction and assimilation of the lower by living according to what is highest in us and what is higher than us. Goose flesh has become our flesh, and our flesh, through a proper reception of the Blessed Sacrament, is being incorporated into the Eucharistic flesh of the risen Lord. Let us earn the sacrifice that our Lord and his creation have made for us. Let us become better lovers of God's self and neighbor, fueled by Eucharistic animal and vegetable life.
So by all means, buy local products, plant a vegetable garden, and disdain modern agribusiness. But above all, eat with the intention to make the harvest worth it. Now, the response to the second trend, to fewer family meals, well, it's obvious, have more family meals. Um, one of the reasons, so uh, as Ryan has mentioned, uh, I've written this book, Dining with the Saints. I co-wrote it with Father Leo Padalinkug, who has his own cooking show on EWTN. He's an outstanding chef. Beat Bobby Flay in a contest. Uh, so Regnery, the publisher, I wrote those Saints stories. He provided the recipes, which is a perfect partnership. You don't want an Irishman in the kitchen. Uh, so it was really good that, that Father Leo took care of this. Um, he's been doing this kind of ministry for years. And uh, one of his talking points is that the family dinner is not important. It's essential. Right? This is a non-negotiable uh, for you know, all the statistical reasons that we just mentioned. Now, of course, it's not easy to do family dinner every night, especially in our modern frenetic world. It's not easy to prepare meals. It's not easy to organize schedules. And let's be honest, it's not always pleasant. The conversations can sometimes get heated among families around the table. But that, too, is one of the reasons to do it, right? It's a processing. Your, uh, it's, it's a way to hash things out. It's a developmental thing. The motto of our book is the family that dines together shines together. But when I told this to my teenage son, he replied, isn't our motto, the family that dines together, wines together? That tells you something about the tenor of our family dinners. So, but it's still important, you know, whether it's pleasant or not, it's still important. We Catholics should not only bring back the family dinner, but we have the ability to elevate it by sacralizing or sanctifying it. The simple act of blessing the food before the meal and giving thanks for the meal afterwards frames the event and transforms an essentially selfish act of eating, which is what all eating is, really, when you think about it, into a selfless act of gratitude. This is essentially St. Paul's solution to the food controversies of his day, responding to the question of whether Christians had to observe the dietary restrictions of the Mosaic Law Paul essentially says to each his own, so long as you are motivated by gratitude to God. So if you abstain from pork because you just, ugh, but you still give thanks to God for it, that's fine. But if you embrace Christ and pork, but give thanks to God, that's fine too. Second, we Catholics have a rich liturgical year and a rich tradition of feasting and fasting that add extra meaning to our gastronomic times together. Sharing the burden of a traditional Lenten fast, for example, strengthens the bonds of community as we suffer as one and exhort each other to push on. And Easter dinner never tastes as good unless it is preceded by the great fast. Finally, the lives of the saints can offer us some guidance on how to conduct ourselves during dinner. As Bishop of Hippo, St. Augustine despised gossip and detraction, so much so that he had carved onto the table the inscription, if keeping from slander you are not able, know that you're not worthy of this table. 
One time when two visiting bishops would not stop disparaging one of their peers, Augustine angrily and abruptly left the table in the middle of dinner and retired to his room. That said, it must be admitted that not all the saints are models of table etiquette. And quite frankly, some of them were party poopers. St. Isidore of Alexandria and St. Anthony the Great frequently burst into tears at table when they thought of the difference between their earthly needs and the food of angels. You may be surprised to learn that Saints Isidore and Anthony were not invited to a lot of people's homes. St. Thomas Aquinas, God bless the Thomistic Institute, but he was not an ideal dining companion. At a banquet with King St. Louis IX of France, the absent-minded college professor became so lost in thought that he slammed his fist on the table in the middle of dinner and shouted, and that will settle the Manichaeans, who hadn't been a problem since the fourth century. <laughs> the dinner party went dead quiet, but the gracious king instructed a secretary to approach Aquinas with a notepad, lest his important insight be forgotten. That's a good uh, dinner host, is it not, right? Very gracious, looking out for everyone. St. Francis of Assisi gets somewhat higher marks. On one memorable occasion, after repeatedly denying the request of his good friend St. Clair to dine together, he relented at the urging of his disciples. Francis had the table set on the bare ground, which was his custom. The two saints sat down along with several of their companions. As the first course was being served, Francis began speaking of God so sweetly and profoundly that the entire group went into a rapture. Meanwhile, it appeared to the rest of the residents of Assisi that Francis's church and the entire forest around it were on fire. Grabbing their water buckets and whatnot, they raced to where the group was dining, only to find them safe and sound, wrapped in contemplation. Then they knew for sure that it had been a heavenly and not a material fire that God had miraculously shown them to symbolize the fire of divine love, which was burning in the souls of those holy friars and nuns. Happy and relieved, the townsfolk withdrew. The ecstasy of Francis and his companions lasted a long time, and when it was over, all were so refreshed by spiritual food that none of them had had a bite of their actual meal. Their hearts burned hot while their food grew cold. Although this is a charming story, it is hardly a viable norm for daily dinner. First, I suspect that the neighbors would tire of it rather quickly. Second, it might incur several fines from the fire department for false alarms. And third, imagine how mad mom would be if this happened every night. All her hard work in the kitchen ignored and wasted. But it does point to the goodness of holy and love-filled conversation. Informal discussions while breaking bread can bring the faith alive to young and old alike and remind us, even while we are refreshing our bodies, that man does not live by bread alone, but by the word of God. So during this season of Lent and always, let us renew our commitment to eat and drink to the glory of God. We might save not only our own souls, but Western civilization as well. Thank you.
All right, can you handle shifting from eating to drinking? So uh, I'll make this very brief and we can talk about this as well. There are five easy lessons to remember in order to drink like a saint. The first one is obvious. Drink like a saint, one must drink with moderation. It's not only the morally responsible thing to do, it is actually the more pleasant thing to do. It is when you eat and drink to excess that you start to get a diminishing return on your investment. So moderation is actually uh, the most pleasant and the most moral. Uh, Second way to drink like a saint, and it ties into eating for the glory of God, is to drink with gratitude. Uh, Chesterton links the two, moderation and gratitude. We should thank God for beer and burgundy by not drinking too much of them. Gratitude is an often ignored virtue these days. We live in an age of entitlement and resentment. Um, But we Catholics should feel natural with gratitude. Uh, We shouldn't have any problem feeling indebted to God. Um, We should be grateful for it. The, The very word Eucharist means thanksgiving, right? So. Um, that same thanksgiving we have for all of the spiritual benefits in our life, we should have for the fruit of the grape and the grain as well. So the second way to drink like a saint is to drink with gratitude. The third is related to it. The third way to drink like a saint is to drink with memory. Because if you don't remember the good things that have been given to you, then you're not going to be grateful for them. And one Litmus test, which you may have heard from uh, Hilaire Belloc and Chesterton, is that healthy drinking is drinking to remember. Unhealthy drinking is drinking to forget. Um, And just to give you one sort of example of that, if you've ever been to like a really good Catholic wedding, I have to say Catholic because teaching in Central Texas, there are Baptist weddings. But it's sweet tea is the main ingredient. And that's not what I'm talking about. Um, At a really good Catholic wedding, you'll have like three or four generations who come to celebrate the nuptials of this man and this woman. And I I can speak for myself. I hope Mrs. Foley would agree. But when we go to weddings and we get invited to a lot of weddings, students get married and whatnot. Even if the ceremony is very different from our own, there's something about a wedding that reminds you of your own. And there's something about remembering your own wedding that reminds you of a whole chain of weddings. It reminds you of an entire chain of love that made your coming together possible. So when you toast to someone at a wedding, you're not only toasting to the good fortune of this new couple, you're toasting to the chain of love, this vast human network of love that brought them together. And you're toasting to to your own marriage and to the marriages of your ancestors that brought you together. That's drinking to remember, right? That's good drinking. Contrast that with, you know, the the poor lonely guy at the end of the bar, late at night, just, you know, chugging shot after shot. He's drinking to forget, right? He's trying to blot out the, the bad day, the bad memories, the lost opportunities. That is unhealthy drinking. Uh, fourth way to drink like a saint is to drink with merriment. Uh, I personally make a contrast between fun and merriment. There's nothing wrong with fun, um, but fun, to my mind, implies a form of entertainment that can be enjoyed alone. You can have fun watching a movie by yourself, 
fun playing a video game or whatever. Um, but merriment necessitates community. You can't make merry alone. That's why we have the phrase, the more the merrier, right? There's something almost sacred about merriment. Uh, it's, it's, it's more than just a kind of collective entertainment or fun. For example, the phrase, Merry Christmas. You know, people get all upset about that phrase because Christ's Mass is mentioned. But I submit they don't know the half of it. Isn't it the case? Don't tell them this. Uh, isn't this the case that when you wish someone a Merry Christmas, you're wishing them more than have a fun Christmas? When you wish someone Merry Christmas, aren't you always kind of invoking a blessing? Right? There really is something almost sacred about merriment. And how silly it would be to use that term in other contexts. Uh, Merry Administrative Professionals Day. <sighs> eh, doesn't quite work, does it? So uh, when you drink, drink with merriment. And then finally, uh, when you drink, drink with ritual. Uh, we Catholics should know that ritual is not the enemy of joy. Uh, ritual can channel joy, crystallize joy, focus it. And the ritual that I'm thinking of with drinking is a very simple and ancient ritual, the ritual of the toast. Um, I'm, I'm very impressed with y'all. Uh, you young folks, you are far more discerning about food and drink than my generation. I assure you that when I was in college, nobody ever talked about a beer's flavor profile. You know, our idea of uh, a party was a keg in one corner and a ghetto blaster in the other. I know that dates me terribly. Um, but, you know, we were not discerning. I think this new discernment being, you know, the, the foodie phenomenon is a good one because for one thing, it encourages moderation. You're actually slowing down and tasting the beer you drink. That's, that's a great idea. <laughs> um, but the one thing I would encourage you, because I do see sort of a, a loss in this social ritual, is I do see a loss of toasting. People's, people don't toast as much as they used to. It should be natural. It doesn't have to be long-winded or pompous, but... Even the briefest of toasts turns an amorphous event into a real event, right? Turns an amorphous get-together into an event, an occasion. Now, let's toast to John who, you know, got that scholarship he'd been asking for. Uh, may he use it well and not screw it up, you know, something like that. So now you've got a reason to celebrate. Um, so uh, those are my five talking points for for drinking like a saint. And I would conclude by saying, oftentimes, or at least in where I am in Central Texas, we have teetotaling Christians. The question comes up, you know, can Christians drink? To me, we've actually reached a point in our society, which has become so despairing and nihilistic, that to me, the question is, are Christians the only ones left capable of doing it? You know, it seems like only we actually have those channels of gratitude and merriment that can actually use alcohol well. Anyway, those are my points about that. Thank you. All right, very good. Yes. Yes, so the question is about art and feasting, and apropos of Joseph Pieper. 
Um, I actually rely heavily on Peeper in formulating my thoughts, both about merriment and about ritual. Um, because it is Peeper's claim that you cannot have a genuine festival unless it is sacred. Uh, he's reacting against fake Marxist holidays. Um, but he, he has no room for secular holidays. He says they're just fake. Uh, only, only real joy, only real merriment, only real leisure comes from the sacred. Um, so that's what I was drawing from. Uh, I haven't thought about more specifically the connection between festivity and art. Um, I'm, I'm putting toasting in the category of ritual, but you're right that a ritual is a, I mean, it is a human product. Even our sacred rituals, humans collaborated in. Um, I'll have to think more about that. Yes. Great question. So the question is what, what to do to rejuvenate the family dinner when maybe it's grown cold. Um, actually, our family most recently got into that conundrum. We were very good. We have six kids. We were very good about the family dinner at the beginning. And then when some of the older kids became teenagers and took an interest in tennis and other sports, nighttime practice interfered with the family dinner and and we kind of let it go. Um, and then just more recently realized, gosh, there is a deficit here and we're, we're bringing it back. And it has been pulling teeth <laughs> with a couple of our teenagers. Um, they're already exhausted after tennis. Yep. And they want to take a shower, but that's an extra 15 minutes. And the food's on the stove. And they grumble. Family that dines together, wines together. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But I, I really think the, the key is perseverance. Um, even if they hate it, make them articulate their hatred, and it will improve their academic performance. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so one thing we do, we really try to engage the kids. Um, so we, we go around the room and we ask, what was your favorite part of the day? And it's a way of engendering gratitude. Um, and that works some of the time. Thanks be to God, our, we have three mostly out of the house right now. And um, they have really blossomed. And when they come back, they come back with a renewed appreciation of all the things we made them do. Like sit down for dinner and hold your fork right. <laughs> Yes, and they can't believe it. Like, you're, you're thanking them for this? <laughs> yeah. Yes. So the question is, guidelines uh, for drinking, guidelines for possible underage drinking. What do I do with my children? Now, it is, it is a fascinating question and a, and a tricky one. I completely understand the reason why the uh, legal age was raised from 18 to 21. On the other hand, one of the disadvantages of that law is that it discourages elders from teaching younger people how to drink. So you're here at Georgetown. I graduated from Santa Clara University and um, both Jesuit institutions, in case you were wondering. Um, and when I was there, of course, it was co-ed, but when it was an all boys school, and when the drinking age was 18, the Jesuits would open up 
their residence and they had a bar in the basement. And like Tuesday night was happy hour with the Jesuits. I mentioned this to an evangelical colleague of mine. He said, oh, like it confirmed all his worst fears about Jesuits. I'm like, no, I'm, I'm giving them a rare compliment. <laughs> this was good because let's say you're a freshman and you go to the Jesuits and there's, you know, stern father Schmitz. And he's, uh, he's, he's, you know, having a beer with you. You think you're going to get plastered? In front of like old school Jesuits, right? You think, <laughs> you think you're going to get plastered in front of them? No, you're not. But, but those Jesuits were teaching those young men how to drink. Drinking is an art. And like any other art, it needs to be learned. And there should be a mentor, you know, apprentice sort of thing going on. So that's what we try to do with our kids. Um, you know, we will have wine on special occasions. You know, if they, if they want a sip of my beer, they can. Um, uh, the danger is making alcohol a forbidden fruit or a symbol of rebellion. Um, so the, the alcoholism rate in the United States is 5.5%. In Italy, where there is no legal drinking age, the alcoholism rate is 0.5%. It's because it's not a forbidden fruit. Wine is on the table of an Italian family every day. And they learn to drink it responsibly and they, they don't have high mortalities on the highways. And, and I can speak from experience, having lived in Rome, when you see public drunkenness, it's never an Italian. Nine times out of 10, it's an American. And then the 10th one is a German. <laughs> All right, thank you. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.